when we talk about eschatology in times, typically there's people have taken or leaned towards two poles. People have tended to gravitate towards uh, two views, pessimism and optimism. People who are pessimists typically see the world getting worse. People that are optimists, obviously, world getting better. There's, there's eschatologies that play to both of these views. The eschatology that plays to pessimism, which we looked at for the last two weeks, dispensational theology plays to pessimists. The world's going to burn. Every dispensation ends in failure. God's going to rapture the church out so that he can judge the world and it be purged and destroyed and the new heavens, new earth. So things worse and worse was found to be a dominant trait among people who are dispensationalists. Things getting better and better Postmillennial theology was very prominent among people who saw the world as getting better and better because the gospel was spreading. Like the mustard seed, it was growing and it would cover the earth. Like the yeast, it was working its way through the dough until it spread everywhere. And these two views were embraced. It's interesting, but you can also almost chart it on a spectrum of, of ideology where if you had... You had fundamentalism on one end and liberalism on the other end. Among Christians, it tends to divide this way. You t Christian fundamentalists tend to be dispensational who tend to see the world as getting worse and worse and worse, longing for the good old days, things like that. Christians who are liberal tend to see the world getting better, progress happening, uh, you know, yeah, things are just working themselves out. So there's, there, it's interesting. You can almost plot people along this perspective. But one of the things that, that the view that sees the world getting better and better got a shot, uh, got a boost in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And during the rise of modernism, and the Industrial Revolution, um, standard of living started going up, literacy rates started going up, the gospel was spreading during these revivals in America and in Europe. And so a lot of people looked at this and this is what they saw. And then this view fits well with the other major movement or, or worldview that came on the scene in the late 1800s, early 1900s, which was the view of of evolution, Darwinian evolution, things working itself to greater and greater levels of fitness or adaptation. And so the, the, the influence that Darwin had on society was far outside the field of biology. I mean, he didn't just influence biology, he influenced everything. And on page 85 of Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright talks about the, the problem that this view has with, reckon, with reckoning with evil in the world. And he says, uh, the first full paragraph on page 85, 
He said, the real problem with the myth of progress is, as I just hinted, that it cannot deal with evil. When I say deal with, I don't just mean intellectually, although that is true as well. I mean in practice. It can't develop a strategy that actually addresses the severe problems of evil in the world. This is why all the evolutionary optimism of the last 200 years remains helpless before world war, drug crime, Auschwitz apartheid, child pornography, and other interesting sidelines that evolution has thrown up for our entertainment in the 20th century. We can't explain them given the myth of progress and neither can we eradicate them. And so he, he talked about one of the big problems that any view that leans to this side has is reconciling and looking at the, the face of evil in this world. And that's where this side has a point. They say evil is real and this idea of, of pr progress and, and things getting better and better, it just does not, it flies in the face of history. We don't see it happening anywhere in the world other than in isolated pockets. But what, let's see if I can find the quote, what the, on page 90, he then sort of stresses the major shortcoming with this side, this way of viewing the world, is that this view, if this view leads towards a naive optimism, this leads toward uh, an anti-world, anti-materialism that leads into escapism, leads into getting out of this world. And what N.T. Wright points out, page 90, top paragraph, he says, he, he talks about that, that this view actually has a lot in common. The idea of the world is bad. It's, we need to escape it. We need to get out. That was a view that was held by early groups called Gnostics. And Gnostics got some popularity from the Da Vinci Code recently, but uh, that presentation of it was anything but Gnostic. Gnostics were an early heresy that worked its way into the early Christian church. And <coughs> page 90 Surprised by hope, he says, most Western Christians, and most Western non-Christians for that matter, in fact, suppose that Christianity was committed to at least a soft version of Plato's position, and that's this Gnostic view. A good many Christian hymns and poems wander off unthinkingly in the direction of Gnosticism, the, quote, just passing through spirituality, as in the spiritual, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through though it has sometimes has affinities with classical Christianity, encourages precisely a Gnostic attitude. The created world is at best irrelevant, at worst a dark, evil, gloomy place, and we immortal souls who existed originally in a different sphere are looking forward to returning to it as soon as we're allowed to. A massive assumption has been made in Western Christianity that the purpose of being a Christian is simply, or at least mainly, to, quote, go to heaven when you die. And texts that don't say that, but that mention heaven, are read as if they did say it. And texts that say the opposite, like Romans 8, 18-25 and Revelation 21-22, are simply screened out as if they didn't exist. And he goes on to talk about that, that both of these errors that Christians have made. This error downplays the goodness of creation. This error downplays the reality of evil. And the, the hope that Christians have, the hope that many people are surprised to find in the gospel is, he ends it on page 91, over against both of these popular and mistaken views, the central Christian affirmation is that what the creator God has done in Jesus Christ and supremely in his resurrection is what he intends to do for the whole world, meaning by world the entire cosmos with all its history. 
And it's this that I turn in the next chapter. And so the next chapter and, and the section that we're going to be, you'll be in for the next couple of weeks is getting into, okay, how is God dealing with this problem of evil in a way that doesn't naively believe everything's getting better, but it also doesn't believe, hey, it's all going to burn, so it doesn't matter what we do with it. And that's where eschatology, biblical eschatology, gives some answers that steers clear of the two. Uh... Tonight, we're going to sort of wrap up our overview of these different views so that next week, once we start getting into the text, you'll be able to come to it and say, okay, you know, I'm reading this text. This is what it says. Now, all of these views that we've heard, how do they fit with it? How do they account for it? And, and from there, you'll be able to filter things through your own lens, through your own view of Scripture, and see where you end up. Okay, well, the sheet that you have, what I've done is we, we did a two-week detour to look at one type of eschatology, which was dispensationalism, premillennial dispensationalism. We spent two weeks on that because, one, it's the most complicated of the views out there, thus the need for the charts and seminars and books and, and everything. Uh, and two, it's the most recent view out there. In other words, it's, it's, it's new in the history of church. And three is it's, in, at least in America, the most popular view out there as far as widespread. And that was because of how dispensationalist proponents have, have packaged and given their view to a wide audience, whereas non-dispensationalists, you don't see that many amillennial or historic premillennial adventure novels chop, tarnic, chop, topping the charts. I think Hank Hanegraaff tried to write one to counter Left Behind, but I think about seven people bought it. So <laughs> you, you just can't compete with that. Um, so we looked at that view for two weeks. Well, what I want to do in week four is give sort of the, okay, let's round out this picture so that we'll see kind of where things stand. And I wanted to talk about some of the, what we call fringe views. And by fringe, I don't mean crazy or, or wacky or anything. I just mean the views that haven't been held by a majority of Christians throughout the church, but have been held by some. And the, the, the one that I mentioned, or the one that I just mentioned, the view of post-millennialism, is one that, if you, if you look at the sheet that I've given you, let me back up for just a second. Views of the millennium. Let's put together our Richard Baucom, who's a scholar over at Cambridge, excellent New Testament scholar. And we talked about how these views of the millennium all basically center around how do you deal with what happens or what's said to happen in Revelation chapter 20. Is Revelation chapter 20 describing a future event before Jesus comes back? Is it describing a future event after Jesus comes back? Or is it describing the present reality in a just really odd way that we have trouble understanding? That's, that's the question that, that all of the end times views have wrestled with. And so for the earliest part, the, this uh, Bauckham put this list together. This is from the New Dictionary of Theology, his article on Millennium in there. He, he gives you sort of a list of how they appeared, premillennialism. Or sometimes you hear it called kiliism. Kilios is just the Greek word for a thousand. And this was some of the early church fathers, Papias and Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. All of these took the view that 
basically, Revelation 20 and, and the promises that God made to, to Israel will be recognized at some point in the future after Jesus returns. He's going to return and establish this thousand-year or long, not necessarily thousand-year kingdom. And uh, there's going to be resurrection of the saints, not of all the dead, but of the saints. They'll live to enjoy it with him. The promises in, say, Isaiah, where it talks about the lion lying down with the lamb and those, those visions of, of, you know, the wolf and the sheep together, all these things, that's going to happen in the millennium. And, and so it was just expected that when Jesus comes back, when he returns, that's what he's coming back to do. Well, not too long after that, a number of Christians started saying, that's, that view is based on a very literal, literalistic reading of Revelation. And it also doesn't make sense in light of the emphasis that the New Testament places on Jesus' first coming and, and what he did at his first coming and how he currently reigns over all creation. And you see that in some of Paul's writings of Jesus reigning at the right hand of God. And, and so, and one of the most famous proponents who, I guess, popularized this but wasn't the first person was Augustine. St. Augustine, and he held that Revelation 20 and this, this idea of a future reign of Jesus, when Jesus comes back, that's, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and, and there's no need to set up a temporary earthly kingdom, put Satan in a holding cell for a thousand years, then let him out at the end of that thousand years, and then finish him off. And he says, that's, you're just, that's getting uh, too far away from all of the other New Testament texts in order to hold to a literal reading of Revelation 20. And so the amillennial view was pretty strong, and, and, and Augustine is very influential in the history of the church. Most Christian theology, uh, Catholic and Protestant, owes a good bit of its thinking to Augustine, whether for good or bad. Uh, then later, 12th century and on, this view started to arise called postmillennialism, and postmillennialism was basically saying the stuff in Revelation 20, yes, Jesus is only coming back once, but the stuff in Revelation 20 is still something that's not been realized yet. And we're looking forward to that, view, that, that time when Jesus is going to reign, but he's going to do it through his church. So the millennium, this time of worldwide, you know, the lion lying down with the lamb and all that stuff, that's going to come in the future, but it's going to come as the world is Christianized. As, the, as the, the faith spreads, as, as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And then uh, the number four of his Protestant premillennialism is sort of an offshoot, I guess, that arose in the 1700s, 1800s. Um, not, you can read that. There's, it's not really a huge difference. The last view is what he calls symbolic amillennialism. And again, it's sort of a, I don't know, read it and see what you think, but th those aren't major views that are differing from the first three. Well, what I've given you on the, after that is, is I've wanted to let each of the Christian views sort of present their own case. And so starting with the earliest one, the premillennial view of the millennium, what I did was this is from Walt Kaiser. He was a professor of mine. He was the president of Gordon-Conwell, Old Testament scholar, and historic premillennialist. This is from his book, Hard Sayings of the Bible, his section on Revelation 20. And he talks about how different Christians have viewed what happens in Revelation 20. And then he talks about how 
the different views, their strengths and their weaknesses, and then he ends with what he's, he basically says, this is how early Christians interpreted it, this is what I think is the right interpretation, uh, but then in the end, I, he ends it by pointing out that regardless of which view you take, you have to affirm the main things that the passage is teaching, and the last paragraph in there, second sentence down, we must careful to preserve the values that John expresses. The reign of Satan is doomed. He will be, or if you're homilio, has been, chained. Christ will reign. His victory on the cross will be consummated. His martyrs will, will be rewarded. And rebellion against God will meet its end. These are the essence of the millennial teaching, which is Revelation 20, that must be preserved by any view. The test of a view is whether it best explains the data of Scripture and whether it preserves the values that John is trying to teach in Revelation. And I, I like how he, he summed that up, is the test of any view is it best explains the most Scripture and it accurately presents what the passage in question is teaching. And once we start looking at these passages in question, this is when you're going to be able to apply some of this. And, and you're, you, you'll see what it, how it works out from theory to practice once we actually look at certain passages. But right after that, I wanted to give you the amillennial perspective. And so on the next page, you have the amillennial view. And this is by Michael Wilcox, British scholar, who did the commentary of Revelation in a series, The Bible Speaks Today. And I've gone through and underlined the main ways, the main points that distinguish an amillennial understanding of Revelation 20 from a premillennial understanding. So we won't read through all that yet, but I've given that to you so you can go through and, and get to the point of it. And I also gave a quote by Stanley Grins at the end on amillennialist and how it, it seeks to be what he calls a realist perspective. In other words, taking things at face value and, and anyway, you can judge for your own. The last one I wanted to mention, postmillennialism. And postmillennialism was popular, like I said, in the 1700s, 1800s. And Adam Clark, Adam Clark was one of the most widely read Methodist biblical scholars, one of the few, actually, because Methodism itself was, to a large degree, a grassroots movement. It started among lay people, and John Wesley got in a lot of trouble for ordaining lay preachers uh, outside of the channels of the Church of England. And so much so that after his death, the, the, his movement within the Church of England became split off and became Methodist, and a whole new denomination. Well, Adam Clark, one of, he writ, wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. He's sort of like the Matthew Hen Baptists have Matthew Henry, Methodists have Adam Clark. Uh, this is his take on Revelation 20, and I actually wanted to read it from you. It's really short from his uh, commentary on that, but he says, the doctrine of the millennium, or the saints reigning on earth a thousand years with Christ, for, with Christ for their head or as their head, has been illustrated and defended by many Christian writers, both among the ancients and the moderns. Then he talks about speculation. He says, it's long been the idle expectation of many persons that the millennium in their sense was at hand, and its commencement has been expected in every century since the Christian era. It's been fixed for several different years during the short period of my own life. In other words, People have been predicting that the millennium's coming every generation, and he said many times even during his own life. I believe those predictions to be vain and have lived to such. Yet there is no doubt, and this is, this is listen to, this is um, you know, about 200 years ago, pre-World Wars. and pre 
There is no doubt that the earth is in a state of progressive moral improvement and that the light of true religion is shining more copiously everywhere and will shine more and more to the perfect day. But when the religion of Christ will be at, at its meridian of light and heat, in other words, when it reaches its zenith, we know not. In each believer this may speedily take place, but probably no such time shall ever appear in which evil shall be wholly banished from the earth till after the day of judgment, when the earth, having been burnt up, a new heaven and a new earth shall be produced out of the ruins of the old by the mighty power of God. The righteousness alone shall dwell in them. So you see this, this, this Adam Clark was part of the Wesleyan revival. And, and John Wesley and Charles Wesley and the early preachers of Methodism literally changed the face of England and altered the entire course of that country. And then over here in America, the Methodist movements and preachers and uh, Francis Asbury and a number of the, the, the frontier preachers and people. I mean, they were, they were just seeing tons and tons and tons of people come to faith. And so you, you can't blame them for thinking, oh, this gospel thing's working. You know, this, this stuff really is growing. This is expanding. Um, so then he goes through and gives you in verse 3 and 4, talks about what does it mean when Satan's bound so he should deceive the nations no more. He says that means being unable to blind men with superstition and idolatry as he had formerly done because the, the true religion, Christianity, is spreading and people aren't, don't have to be bound by their idolatry and superstition. Verse 4, this is interesting, when John says he saw thrones set up, uh, Adam Clark's take on it was this means Christianity established in the earth, the kings and the governors being all Christians. In other words, the gospel wins. It, it goes out and all the nations become disciples of Jesus. And then talking about the saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years, he said, I'm satisfied that this period should not be taken literally, meaning the length of time. It may signify that there shall be a long and undisturbed state of Christianity. And so universally shall the gospel spirit prevail that it will appear as if Christ reigned upon the earth. It will appear as if Christ reigned upon the earth, which will in effect be the case because his spirit shall rule in the hearts of men. And in this time, the martyrs are represented as living again. In other words, they didn't, don't really rise. They're, John just sees this vision all symbolic. Because their testimony being revived and the truth for which they died and which was confirmed by their blood being now everywhere prevalent. So in other words, what post-millennialists in the 17, 1800s, maybe even early 1900s, what they saw was society is getting better, but not because of any evolutionary or, or natural inclination. Society is getting better because the gospel's spreading. Jesus' kingdom is, the kingdom of heaven is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the church. You know, all of these things that, that they read in scripture and sort of lost track of all of the equal emphasis that Jesus gave on on how they're being deceivers until the end, and, and they're, you know, weed and the weeds growing together. So post-millennials, it's, people usually want to take one side or the other, and, and you've got to hold them both in balance. Post-millennials tended towards optimism and dispensational, and even some premillennials tended towards pessimism. But in the end, post-millennialism was not held widely, and to this day, after World War I, World War II especially, very few very few post-millennial biblical scholars or, or prominent church people. Uh, you can still have some. I had one professor in seminary who was post-millennial, but, but there are not very many. 
the dominant views and the, the views that have held sway for the history of the church pretty much have been what we talked about premillennial and amillennial. And so if you have this chart, just to re refresh and review, the two middle sections, dispensational and postmillennial, those have been sort of the, the exception to the rule. But the historic church has either believed historic premillennialism, that Jesus is going to come when he returns, he's going to usher in a reign on earth. Literally, not doesn't have to literally be a thousand years, but it will literally be a reign on earth. And that's when all of the promises that God made to Israel that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, that's when all of those will take place. So Gentiles streaming to Israel, Gentiles coming to Mount Zion, bringing their gifts, worshiping, bowing down at the Messiah. All of those things that the Psalms and the prophets all declared, historic premillennial Christians have said, that's going to happen. Jesus is going to rule as Israel's Messiah. But it's not going to just be ethnic Israel now. It's going to be all who are in Christ because, as the New Testament teaches, and we looked at last week, in Jesus, the people of God were, was opened up to Jew and Gentile alike. Not separated into two separate groups, but actually Jesus combined. In Ephesians 2, we looked at Jesus brought down the dividing wall, not just between us and God, but between Jew and Gentile. And so his people, the true Israel, the Israel of God, will reign on the earth 4,000 years or a long period of time. And all the promises that God made in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled, that the Messiah was supposed to do, will take place. So for instance, one of the big things if you have Jewish friends and, and, you ever, and they're observant Orthodox Jewish friends and you ask them, why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? The number one reason that they'll probably say is because there's not world peace. A number of Jewish rabbis and scholars, Jewish theologians have said, look around. If the Messiah is already here, he's done a pretty lousy job because there's not world peace. There's not, I mean, don't even forget the Holocaust and all of that for, for a minute. Look at the worldwide scale, not just with the Jews in the world, but with other nations. World peace, all these promises that God made about nations beating their swords into plowshares and all that stuff, it hasn't happened yet. And historic premillennial, the earliest Christians said, you're right that it hasn't happened yet, but that is because the first time, or, or first Messiah had to come and be a priest. He had to take down, he had to take care of the problem between man and God. And only when that's reconciled can the problems between man and man be reconciled fully. And when he returns, he's going to return as king. He came as priest, he's going to return as king. And all of those promises will happen. The world peace will happen and, and Israel, 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 um, but Israel focused on Jesus will be the head of the nations and, and everyone will see God through it and there will just be this time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. All of the promises in the Old Testament happened. Historic premillennial. So all those Old Testament promises haven't happened yet. They're going to happen. And then there will be final judgment and then new heavens and new earth and, and the end end happens. All right? The other view like we've mentioned, and the, the amillennial view says, you know, all of these things that, that are, the Old Testament prophets saw were 
hints and shadows of a greater reality. They use the language of the book of Hebrews, for instance. How you know the temple was was just a shadow of the real temple in heaven, the real you know God being the very center of all creation. He he expressed it in a way that the earthly temple just hinted at. Even the prophets, when they have visions of things, they use phrases like "I saw something that looked like such and such," because even prophetic visions can't capture and express the fullness of what it really is. So when the Old Testament prophets talk about world peace, uh, they talk about nations streaming toward Israel and giving their gifts to Israel and worshiping God and everything. Those were, were, were glimpses or ways that the Old Testament prophets could put into words or ways that they could capture what the reality of a renewed creation would be, what God is ultimately doing. There's no need to read those as descriptions of a future still earthly event before a final, final judgment and recreation. You can read those as speaking of the reality in the new creation that God's going to do. So there's no need to put in a thousand year period of God finishing earthly promises. All of those promises can happen in the, in other words, Gentiles, Jews, the world, everybody's still going to flock to Jerusalem, but it's going to be the new Jerusalem, not an earthly Jerusalem. People will still come and they'll, 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 they'll learn God's word, his decrees, his commandments, but they'll learn them directly from Jesus who's dwelling among people. It, it won't be this, there, there won't be more of this time that we're living in when God comes back and does it. And so really that's what, you know, we talked about all of these, these isms, these views, this is, you know, timelines and charts and everything can get really convoluted and can, can sort of confuse us or, or at least make us think that nobody's got it figured out and that it's just this, you know, oh, you're talking about end times? <laughs> Good luck on that, you know. Nobody can really understand. Well, really, it's, it's, it's just pretty simple. All the views agree history, and I'll say earthly, is going along, and that at some point, with Jesus coming on the scene, heaven, I'll say eternity, broke into creation. Like the kingdom of God came into this world at what we call the incarnation or that's a fancy word for or the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us uh, John 1 if you want to reference John chapter 1 at the incarnation earthly history was going along and then Jesus the kingdom of heaven broke into earthly history. And this time that we find ourselves in, this overlap will at some point end with final judgment. This is something that every Christian, I mean, all the millennial views agree with this. Eschatology in this sense really isn't super complicated. At some point, this 
what we experience, what we know of, will come to an end. And God will renew and remake. And, and this new thing This new thing will happen. And, and it's not as if it'll just be a continuation of heaven either because it's a new heaven and a new earth. This holy new thing that we, from then on, who knows what happens. As C.S. Lewis says, that's when it really gets started. So all of the end times views agrees that we're living here. And the only difference is these promises that were made, these prophecies, about uh, the reign of the Messiah, and specifically the things that would happen with Israel and him reigning over them, all of these promises and prophecies, premillennialists say, at some point in here, in this, there's going to be this period before the end of a thousand years. We don't know when. We don't even know if it's going to be a literal thousand years. But it's going to be this, this point where Jesus, who ascended, is going to return. And he's going to set up his kingdom and he's going to do all this. And there's going to be a resurrection of the faithful and the church will enjoy this period at the end of history before the final last gasp of Satan, the last attempt of his trying to stop the inevitable defeat that's going to happen at the final judgment. Then it's sort of like the, the snow that we had this past weekend. My friend, my roommate, is just like, this is winter's last gasp. This is one more, one more attempt to, to close down schools and ruin our days. Uh, and, and now we're done. Hopefully, it's sort of like that. That, that historic premillennials have said, "There's just this is all true." It just at some point, it's still in this timeline, still in earthly time history, there's going to be this millennial reign, and so Jesus is going to be the head of it. Our millennials, people who don't interpret the millennial, they, they said, "No, no, no, all these prophecies, they're going to happen, but they're all speaking about the new." creation, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. So Jesus doesn't have to come back a thousand years before anything happens. He's going to come back, final judgment, make it new, renew all things. That's, I mean, there, there are some minor differences and, and different theologians will go into different facets and things like that. But big picture wise, Christians, 90% of Christians from all ages and time have held one of those two basic views at the risk of oversimplifying it and so rather than eschatology being this really complicated convoluted thing for most Christians throughout most of the church it's been I mean not straightforward because there are still legitimate questions but all of the biblical data can fit into one of those two schemes and so there have been Christians famous Christians and biblical interpreters church fathers you know all going all the way back Christians have always held to one of these two ways of approaching what's going to happen, how God's going to fulfill his promises. Because that's what it's all about. How is God going to fulfill the promises he made that, he, that haven't happened yet? They agree that Revelation 20 
is talking about Jesus spiritually reigning over all creation. Spiritually, but not literally. In other words, he's not coming, he hasn't come back yet because Revelation 20 doesn't say anything about him returning. It's just talking about him reigning. Amillennials and uh, premillennials, where they differ with postmillennials, is, is they think the, the church isn't, isn't going to usher in this golden age. In other words, the judgment that has to happen, Jesus has to return in order for that to happen. In order for things to be set right, Jesus has to return. The church can't do it apart from the, re the return of Christ. So, amillennial, premillennial agree with that. But then where, which have I left out? Then where premillennial and postmillennial agree is they say this millennial period that's spoken of as this time of, you know, just this utopian, well, they say it hasn't happened yet. We're not in it. They point to world conditions. They say there's no way that we can be in this millennial reign. So each view has something in common with the other, and it's, and it's sort of this, this dialogue, uh, three-way, but mostly a, a two-way dialogue, because like I said, postmillennialism uh, of the three has the hardest time explaining all of the other passages. In the amillennial view, the tribulation began when Jesus ascended, and it will continue until he returns. There's no special future capital T tribulation. We're in it, and, and John was in it who, when he had the vision in Revelation. Or the, the historic premillennial would say there, there, there will probably be an a intensification of tribulation at the end. But historic premillennial, unlike dispensational, they don't necessarily believe in this future, set, certainly not a seven-year tribulation that, that dispensationalism is right into. If you look at right some into. of the people that are experiencing yeah. some of the things that are going on yeah. now, they'd say we end. Exactly. And, and from the very beginning, Christians have said, in fact, let's, let's look at one passage that's helpful. Go ahead and open just to Revelation chapter 1. We've touched on this before, I know in Bible for the rest of us, and I think we might have mentioned it here. Remember when Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He was speaking to his first followers. That's point one. In this world, you, Peter, James, John, you know, 11 of the 12 of you who will die for your faith, you know, you will experience tribulation. So we can't just read that as promises to us 2,000 years later. They apply to us, but they weren't written primarily to us. He was speaking to his followers. But look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John introduces himself to his readers and he says, I, John, your brother and your companion in the, what's the first word? If you have NIV, it's suffering. Anybody have something else? Exactly. ESV, King James, New American Standard, tribulation. That word that's rendered suffering is this Greek word, thlipse. T-H-L-I-P-S-E-I, thlipse. And it's the word for tribulation. Or suffering. So whenever you see any talk in the Bible of tribulation, that's the word that's being used. Well, John says right here, I, John, your brother and your companion or your fellow participant in the, 
And then he lists three things that describe what it means to be in Jesus. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance or perseverance. However your translation renders that. That are patient endurance in Jesus. So in other words, for John and for the Christians he was writing to, being in Jesus, and remember there's that language again, in Jesus, Jesus as the new Israel, the, new, the community of God. Being in Jesus guarantees at least three things, and the first of those is tribulation. The second is kingdom, and that's what Revelation is meant to show, that, hey, you think you're getting ruled but actually, through Christ, you are ruling and will continue to rule and one day will, in actuality, rule over the earth. And then the last one is patient endurance or perseverance. That's why Revelation was written, to give them that hope so that they could persevere. So, from the very beginning, Christians have always, when it comes to the tribulation, Christians, there's, there's never been a period in the history of the church where the church, in some way, shape, or form, hasn't been going through tribulation. Even when the church rose to power under Constantine, that only applied to groups that the church within the church that towed the line, so to speak. Um, groups apart from that and outside, and as Christians spread, Christians were going into China at that, by that time, and, and, and there, were, there was all kinds of infighting, and just history got real messy real fast after Jesus left. The, the reason that... Um, I mentioned this the first week. A lot of Christians have said, oh, end time stuff is too complicated. The Bible doesn't really tell us all that. All that millennial stuff is nonsense. I'm a pan-millennial. I'm a pan-millennialist. Why? Anybody know the punchline? It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> That, <laughs> that, is, that, that would be a great view if Jesus hadn't given that one little pesky statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If God's chosen to reveal and speak the truths about this particular issue, in this case the millennium, then while we can hold to this, while we wait and learn and grow until we find something that fits with what we believe, this isn't a great place to end. Because it basically says, God, I don't really care enough to study what you're teaching, so I'm just going to opt out. And if you're taking this class, hopefully that's the first step in showing that you, you may be a pan-millennialist right now, but you know that that's not where you want to end up. You would like to have some understanding of it. So, we're going to look at, next week, we're going to begin and looking at the passages in Scripture where all of these views come from. We're going to start next week in Genesis. We're going to look at uh, what sets the stage for the entire Bible, where the Bible's headed, what God's story is, what His purpose, because... Part of answering these millennial questions have to do with, well, what's God's purpose? I mean, what, what's he plan on doing? You know, I believe God's going to raise up Israel and all the... Well, why? 
Why, why, did, why did God choose Israel in the first place? What did he choose Israel for? Has that been realized? Has that not been realized? Will it be realized in Jesus or Jesus and something else? All of these questions play into it. We're going to look at uh, some passages in Psalms. We're going to look at some passages in Ecclesiastes and Job. And we're going to look in Daniel and Zechariah as well and see kind of what they have to say. For the last, you know, for the first four weeks, all of these ways Christians have approached Scripture so that you, you're not just feel like you're in uncharted territory. You're not, you know, none of us in here are the first people to ever approach these passages or look at these questions. Now that we have an idea of how Christians generally throughout history have looked at these questions, then when we go through the passages, we'll be able to see more clearly what they bring out, what they teach, what they don't teach. Oh, this passage seems to teach... Uh, you know, these events that are going to happen within history that are going to be, you know, um, like utopian. Oh, okay, well that would fit with a premillennial understanding of it, and amillennialists would have a, some, some explaining to do when it comes to these passages. Then we'll see, oh, wait a minute, this seems to depict something about the new creation rather than uh, earthly history. Hmm. Well, that sort of goes with a non-millennial reading. How do premillennialists fit this in? So those are the kind of questions that you'll be able to at least kind of filter around in your head before you come up with what you think in the end. One thing that having the view that dispensationalists have, not maybe not all have, have adhered to, but at least have allowed to happen, the idea of, of Israel being kind of still in covenant with God, that really... Like you said, man, I don't, I don't have to witness to my Jewish friends anymore. They're distant cousins. This is an in-house debate. with it, 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 it smooths out a lot of tensions between Christians and Jews, which there have been a lot of tensions between Christians and Jews, and not just on one side or the other. It's interesting, if you look at church history, for the first 100, 150 years or so, it was the Christian minority who were being persecuted by the Jewish majority who had deemed them heretics, who had deemed them as, you've left the people of Israel, you've left the people of God. And that really set the stage for a lot of persecution, especially Revelation gets into it, where you had basically in the Roman Empire, throughout the Roman Empire, you had to pay homage to the Roman gods or the local province gods in some way, shape, or form, unless you were Jewish. The Jews had an exemption from worshiping or paying homage to any of the Roman gods because Rome, I think more than anything, it was just pragmatism. They'd seen how every nation had tried to get the Jews to convert and had failed every time because God's people always said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You will have no other gods before. So they knew, Rome knew, the only way to get them, well, we can't get them to worship other gods. And, and rather than killing them all, which is what some rulers had tried to do in earlier centuries, they allowed the Jews an exemption, saying yeah. it was part of your ancient heritage, your, your cultural background, therefore you don't have to worship the Roman gods. You have to pray for the Roman governors and leaders. So in other words, the Jews had to offer prayers and, and, and do sacrifices for the emperor, but not to the emperor if that makes sense. They had to ask God to bless, they had to ask their God to bless the emperor. That's the way Rome saved faced and the way that the Jews could continue to not have to yeah. practice idolatry. For the early, early Christians, there was a problem 
because once Christianity got outside of, of Judea and Israel and, and started expanding, we, you see this in the New Testament, Christian believers in Jesus, Jesus' followers who were Jewish, started getting expelled from their synagogues and, and, and expelled from their communities. Oh, you, you believe this Jesus guy, this criminal that died on the cross is the Messiah? Well, you have left the faith. You are no longer, you know, you're, you're out of here. We gotta, you, you're cut off from God's people, just like the Torah says. And so for Christians, that became a real problem because in the Roman colonies, if you were Jewish, you were exempt from emperor worship. But if you, if the Jews of the city said, no, they aren't, they're not Jews, they're not us, you no longer were exempt. And so it became, okay, you don't get the Jewish exemption. Worship our gods or pay the price. And for John, that was exile. For other Christians, it was death. So the, there's a, there, in the early church, it was a very heated, heated dialogue, not even dialogue, just in-house argument between Jewish believers in Jesus and Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. And as more and more Gentiles came in, they started eventually over the centuries, it, it, the scales tipped to the other side, and Jews became the minority, who then, once Christians got into power, started to exercise that power in, in worldly and evil ways yeah. and started persecuting the Jewish minority. And so for centuries of that, and now we're on the other side and we have the Rodney King mentality. Can't we all just get along? You know, I don't, don't, you don't witness to me. I won't witness to you. You know, you've got your deal with God. We've got our deal with God. We worship on separate days. You, you have Sunday. We'll take Saturday. You know, there's just this sense of that plays into and it's very comfortable. Um, and so, you know, it, it's become popular. But, well, Jesus... Paul, Peter, John, James, Jude, um, the author of Hebrews especially, all of these people who wrote this book that we call the New Testament were Jews, except for maybe one, Luke. And the first priority for them was getting Israel to see that their Messiah had come so that they would not miss out on all of the promises that God was bringing to fulfillment in their Messiah. Mm -hmm. So for Paul, the first place he went in every city was the synagogue. Yeah. And it would be utterly unthinkable for any New Testament author, particularly Paul, to, to, to see that Christians saying, well, we don't have to, you know, the Jews don't need Jesus. Um, I do, I wanted to point out just for a couple of people have asked and, and about, you know, okay, I want to get more background. I want to read more on these different things uh, down the road. Two books, as far as looking at, as far as looking at the whole end times thing, I want to, there's, there's two books that are really interesting and, and I can't remember if I put them in your recommended reading section or not, but they're, they're by theologians who I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with them on a lot of other issues or maybe, but they, th these are really good for understanding, especially for understanding dispensationalism and then the alternative views, the, what the churches believe. One is by Barbara Rossing. She's a, yeah, she's a Lutheran scholar. 
and teaches on Revelation, but her book's The Rapture Exposed, The Message of Hope in the Book of Revelation. And, and I was surprised at how good this was. Uh, it goes through and it talks about the, the, the dangers inherent in holding to, especially in, in the form of, of rapture theology that, that gets promulgated like on CNN and stuff like that, you know, the, the John Hagee-ism. Uh, she talks about, hold on, time out. This is, where did this come from and, and what are, what's the alternative? The other one is by this Stephen Wahlberg. He's actually, I believe he's a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. But this book that he wrote, End Times Delusions, The Rapture, Antichrist, Israel, and the End of the World, there's, he, he's, um, we talked about the different ways Christians interpret scripture, futurist versus preterist and historicist. Well, he, he's, he does, takes a historicist view where he says the events that have happened in Revelation are events that have happened throughout history and specifics, you can see certain things. Like, so for instance, one of his things is he talks about how the, the, the Antichrist, who was to come, if you look at all that, it points towards the state church. And so when the church took over and, and Constantine and the rise of the Catholic church, that became the Antichrist. And he, he has a whole, th- and, and he's not alone. I mean, the church, a lot of the church fathers, Luther said it and others, you know, said, yeah, the Catholic church is the Antichrist. Um, but, but it's interesting, but his, his critique and his, his has a, a small group study guide in the back and we're going to look at some of the questions that he asks because they're really helpful, especially, especially this was helpful on the issue of who is Israel and what's God's plan for Israel, what's God's purpose for Israel. And his take on that was, was I thought, pretty good. But, again, can't speak for all of it. And then one last book I'll mention. This one was written about 50 years ago, I think. I want to say it was written in the 50s. It's just been reprinted, but John Bright this book, The Kingdom of God, it's just a little, it's a short book, but it's actually a biblical theology. He, he, go, he starts at the beginning, and he traces the entire Bible, like the overarching story of what God's doing in terms of the kingdom of God. The goal of, of, of everything is establishing God's kingdom, and what does that mean, and where do we see the kingdom in the Old Testament? What, is the, you know, what does it point to, and then in the New Testament, when the kingdom arrives, and it's just really, really good stuff. So, again, this, this course is, is meant to raise a lot of questions, but it's also meant to provide you with resources to go in the future in your own areas of study or, or you know, you've got questions that start coming up or you say, start, you know, hearing stuff on the news or whatever about Israel. And, and so giving you some resources is how to think about that. Um, so, again, I don't expect or intend everybody to read everything not everybody can get paid to read and study, but those of us who do, it's nice.